All right, everybody, welcome back. In this episode, we're going to take Proverbs chapter 6. This is going to be wisdom to a son on debts and work, sin and seduction. Okay? And so we're going to see the foolishness of taking on others' debts. And uh, the big principle here of chapter 6 is good business principles. So let's just jump right into the first two verses where we're going to see um, advice about taking debts of friends or strangers. My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, then you are snared by the words of your mouth, you are taken by the words of your mouth. So Solomon's going to warn his son against guaranteeing the debts of others, whether they were a friend or a stranger. And this was the promise to pay the debts of the friend or a stranger if they failed to pay. And it's not really like loaning someone money or exactly like co-signing a loan in modern financial terms. It was more like guaranteeing someone's open line of credit. And the New Testament shows us that Paul accepting Onesimus's uh, past liabilities, but not his future ones in Philemon chapters eight, or, um, 18 and 19. And so if you pledge yourself on behalf of the other, you know, you're going to take the burden off of them and you're going to place it on your own shoulders. And when he knows that he's got a good, you know, he's got a scapegoat, essentially, and he doesn't have to meet the demands of law and justice, then he's going to have very little responsibility to uphold his end of the bargain. And uh, it's a great way to get screwed over. So to promise to pay the debts of another person is to put yourself in a trap, essentially. It is a promise made with the words of your mouth, but it will affect and afflict your wallet or purse. And Job chapter 17 verse 3 is going to use this circle of ideas to declare that Job is too bad a risk for anybody but God, and to plead that God will take him up. And so a bridge is made in the Old Testament between the idea of material insolvency and spiritual. So two things which are good advice anytime is beware of signing a friend's note and never become a partner with a stranger. The fellow apparently has been boasting and he wants to appear outstanding in the financial realm and we are to be aware of that. All right, verses three through five. What to do if you have taken the debt of another? All right, so do this, my son, and deliver yourself for you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself, plead with your friend, Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So he's going to counsel his son that if he did make himself responsible for the debt of another person, then he should do all that he could to deliver himself. And he should humble himself and plead to be released from his promise. So the, to humble yourself in the Hebrew, that means to offer thyself to be trodden upon. It means to throw thyself down at his feet. And thou hast made thyself his servant, right? Bear the fruits of your own folly and humbly and earnestly implore his patience and clemency here. And so a gazelle would do anything to escape the hunter and a bird would do anything to get away from the fowler. So Solomon tried to communicate the urgency his son should have in escaping that responsibility for the debt of someone else. And so becoming surety is folly because the surety makes promises for the future that he cannot control. You have no idea what's going to happen in the future. And so moreover, he's handed himself over to the debtor who may unmercifully throw him into the hands of the creditor. And that is not shoes you want to be in. So the first law of holes is to stop digging. 
right? Have you ever made a financial mistake? And then usually those of you that have been into day trading or bad investments, cut your losses now, right? It's better to get out now. Don't wait for it to get better. Sometimes you just got to take the stop loss and get out. And this is that stop loss rule. <clears throat> the best advice is never put yourself there to begin with. It's a bad, it's a bad investment. Verse six through eight. The example of the ant. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. So Solomon spoke wisdom to the sluggard, essentially the lazy man or woman, and that lazy person should learn from the ant, which is an insect proverbial for hard work. And so the book of Proverbs speaks a lot about the value of hard work, and for good reason. The difference between success and failure, between potential disappointment or fulfillment, is often hard work. And no insect is more laborious, not even the bee itself, none is more fondly attached to or more careful of its young than the ant. And so Christ sends us to school, to the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, to learn dependence upon divine providence in Matthew chapter 6, and to the stork, crane, and swallow to be taught to take some seasons of grace and not to let slip the opportunities that God puts in our hands in Jeremiah chapter 8. Nature gives us all sorts of examples of being industrious. So the ant is wise and worthy of imitation because she works hard without having to be told to work hard. They just do it. It's part of their character. And the ethic of diligence comes from within and does not have to be imposed by a captain, overseer, or ruler. Some people just have to have someone looming over them to get them to do anything in life. And we are called not to be anything like that. We should be wise and worthy to be working hard without being told what to do, right? Without being told to work hard. And so Aristotle is also going to assert that ants labor without rulers to direct them. Modern uh, etymologists have discovered a perfect social organization among ants. But as Plout notes, this does not imply that there is a uh, hierarchy of command. Or does it not imply that there's a hierarchy command? There's obviously a command. And so the ant works hard when the work is to be done. And in the summer and in the harvest, the work gets done. And this means that the ant lives a good lesson in her ways and her wisdom. Or gives a good gives a good lesson. So what a deal of grain she gets together in summer. And if you think about it, if you went through the seasons of life, as we move through the spring, summer, and fall, and as we age through life from babies through our adulthood all the way to those winter years, if the ant working hard all year usually gets to have a very comfortable winter. And for those of us that waste our lives doing nothing and playing instead, end up much like the grasshopper, cold and desperate in our old winter years. All right, verse 9 through 11. Warning the lazy man. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. I love that passage. So Solomon asked the lazy man to give account for his ways. And the thought is, you want to sleep, but how long? There is a life to be lived and work to be done. And so the sluggard is the explicit audience. And that is most teenagers and young adults today. But the implicit audiences are the son and the gullible who are addressed in the book. 
and you can go back to Proverbs chapter 1. And they are being warned against laziness through the sluggard's chastisement. And you can look at Proverbs 19.25 as well. And so, when, were you gonna, when are you going to rise from your sleep, he's saying. So, obviously, every person needs sleep. Uh, these are the people that just lay around all day and get nothing done. They lay around and watch football. They lay around. They barely do anything at work. They don't want to. They work as little as possible. They do as little as possible. So, Solomon's advice is not what we should, that we should never sleep, but that we shouldn't excessively sleep. And he imagined the lazy man saying this. He claimed that... He only needed a little sleep, but he actually needed to work more. And so sleep is a defining characteristic of the sluggard. And it's the same in chapter 20, verse 13. And for him, the love of sleep is pure escapism, a refusal to face the world. In Proverbs 26, verse 14. In contrast to the sweet sleep of a laboring person, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, and Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, the sluggard's narcotic sleep ever craves still more sleep to escape the pain of living, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 15. So it's a self-defeating cycle. And then as they sleep and sleep, they lose out on more and more opportunities, and they just go into a deeper, deeper pit of misery. And so they literally sleep themselves into misery. So he says, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler. And so a lazy man will find that poverty and need will come upon him quickly. And the sluggard loves to procrastinate and thinks that things can always be done later on. And the hard worker can look forward to later. For the lazy man, it will come like a prowler. And when it comes, it will be your poverty. Not one imposed by circumstances or misfortune, but through sheer laziness. And so there's at least 14 proverbs related to idleness, either explicitly or implicitly, to poverty, the bitter end of the sluggard. And it's not riches the, ra- the lazy person lacks. It's food, the necessity of life. And so like an armed man, you'd be like an armed man. That is with irresistible fury. And you're not prepared to oppose it, essentially. It's going to come upon you quickly. All right. Verses 12 through 15. The destiny of the wicked man. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth, he winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers, perversity is in his heart, he devises evil continually, he sows discord, therefore his calamity shall come suddenly, suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. And so Solomon moved from the idea of the lazy man to the worthless and wicked man, and these sinful characteristics are often related and combined. And one of the main features of the worthless and wicked person's manner of life, his walk, is the corruption of his speech. He has a perverse mouth, which mainly has the idea of a crooked or corrupt, more than what we would think of as moral perversion. And what he says isn't straight, honest, and right. And so he winks with his eyes. So with his eyes, his feet, his fingers, this worthless and wicked man shows his crooked and dishonest character. Evil and discord come from his life. And so Solomon doesn't directly attribute this calamity or breaking, right? He shall be broken to the judgment of God, but it is implied. God knows how to set the cynical, crooked-speaking man or woman in their deserved place. So a description of a wicked man, a son of Belial, forwardness is perverse, uh, perverseness. So everything he says has double meaning, right? You never exactly know what's going on. And notice that he sows or casts forth discord. And so God desires a holy life because he himself is holy. And so we are to be like him. 
verse 16 through 19, seven things the Lord hates. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. And so the six things, yes, seven. Several times in the book of Proverbs, Solomon's going to use this expression to give a list. And he get this list, the Lord hates, and they're an abomination to him. The six and, the, and, and then seven of the opening statement have their explanation in the description. The six are first stated, and the seventh is that which results. Namely, he sows discord among brethren. And so you get this hissing, uh, sibilant sound resounds throughout the catalog especially in the verse six you know things hate if you look at uh the original translation ses is six sane is hates seba is seven and napasso is him <clears throat> so you can believe it god hates god loves good but he certainly hates evil and seven is the number of completeness i want everybody to understand what that actually the number is representing the seven represents a complete set it's a, it's done it's complete and everything in this list of seven they are all works of the flesh they're all things that reveal the total depravity and the utter degradation of the human species right a time to love a time to hate in ecclesiastes chapter 3 neither uh, shall thou set thee up any image with the lord thy god hates deuteronomy chapter 16 thou lovest righteousness and hates wickedness psalm 45 but this thou hast, that thou hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, in Revelation chapter 2. Right? So God hates. He hates sin. It is the opposite of his character. So let's look through this list. There are seven things that are an abomination to him. And first is a proud look, the eyes of loftiness. And it's the, in Job chapter 40, it's the look on everyone that is proud, bring him low, and tread them down, tread down the wicked in their place. And it's number one on his list. Imagine that. And he puts it ahead of murder and ahead of drunkenness. And look at the origin of pride. It's Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, will say, and these are the five I will statements by Satan. It says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt to my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high and notice all the I statements all the pride and so we get a lying tongue that's number two and Psalm 116 says I said in my haste all men are liars and Psalm 120 deliver my soul O Lord from lying lips and from deceitful tongue and Psalm 51 behold thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the inward part thou shalt make me to know wisdom right into in Psalm 31 into thine hand I commit my spirit thou hast redeemed me O Lord God of truth so there is far more said throughout the Bible about the abuse of the tongue than is said about the abuse of alcohol the abuse of the tongue speech right is something that is common to all races and all languages all right number three Hands that shed innocent blood. So God says the murderer should be punished because he took which God said is sacred, the human life. The popular idea today is completely opposite. After a man has been killed, the murderer is brought to trial, and then suddenly the murderer's life is considered to be precious. Uh, and God says that human life is precious, and that when a murderer kills a man, he is to forfeit his own life. 
capital punishment is the teaching of the word of God. And people doing away from, with that is getting away from biblical principles. They're looking out for the criminal and not the victim. So the fourth thing he hates is a heart that devises wicked imaginations. In Matthew 15 it says, For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. And the Lord Jesus said, It is an ugly brood that comes out of the human heart. By the way, have you ever confessed to God what you have in your mind and in your heart? We all need to do that. We need to be cleansed. All right? Verse 5, or excuse me, the fifth thing that he hates. Uh, <laughs> I was getting ahead of myself. Uh, feet swiftly running to mischief, right? That's the fifth thing in his list. And Isaiah 59 will say, Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. So God is dealing with the anatomy of evil and iniquity, and it includes the eyes, the tongues, the eye, the hands, the heart, and the feet. And the sixth thing he hates is a false witness that speaks lies, and more on this later. And the seventh thing he hates is sowing discord among brethren, and only by pride comes contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom in Proverbs 13. And a fool's lips enter into contention, but his mouth calls for strokes in Proverbs chapter 18. Cast out the scorner, and contention shall go out. Yes, yeah, strife and reproach shall cease, Proverbs 22. <clears throat> right, so most of those sins are connected to something that we do or with, you know, in or through our body. And so the eyes have a proud look, the tongue lies, and so forth. So we are, again, reminded of what Paul wrote in Romans about presenting the parts of our body, right, our members, to God for the work of righteousness and not sin in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. And so this whole collection of seven sins is focused on how we treat others. We must honor God and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Yet God is also concerned about how we treat others. And so... The one who sows discord among brethren, and that's presented as a result of the previous six uh, sins that he hates, and it's or it's the ultimate among them, and it's one of the highest among the things that God hates and regards as an abomination. And seventh, the one who unleashes conflicts, again climactically, brings the catalog to its conclusion. All right, verse 20 through 24, we're going to get God's work can keep you from the evil woman's seduction. All right. Verse 20. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. So Solomon probably had in mind both the wisdom of father passed to his children and the word of God received and cherished by the parents. And a wise child will keep God's word close upon your heart and around your neck. And so chapters 5 through 7, each of the warnings against adultery is prefaced by an admonition to pay attention to the word of God. <clears throat> and it says, when you roam, they will lead you. So the word of God is living and active, it's not just some book. And when it's cherished and kept close, we benefit from the living power of it. It will lead us, it will keep us, and it will speak with us. Anyone who wants God to lead, keep, or speak should begin with cherishing God's word. So Proverbs chapter 6 verse 22 is going to present God's word as a person who helps in many ways. He will lead you as a guide, it will keep you as a guardian, and it will speak with you as a companion. And so this Bible is a wonderful talking book. 
And there's a great mass of blessed talk in this precious volume. And it's coming from outside the domain of time. So God has spoken to you through this book. You can learn through all these stories. Even if it's not written exactly to you, like the interactions in the Old Testament, you can still learn from what happened in those interactions through the Old Testament. You get the holy perspective here. Right? So even though you're under the New Covenant, doesn't mean that there's a lot of learning points to really understand what God's point of view is on all sorts of matters that happen on a day-to-day basis. And so... He says the commandment is a lamp. And Solomon seems to quote Psalm 119 here where he says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and light my path. And so when given attention and properly valued, God's word brings light to us in our darkness and to keep you from the evil woman. So Solomon knew all about evil women. And he spoke to a specific place where wisdom from God's word can help here. And God's word and wisdom is never going to lead us to the evil woman or keep us with her. The light of God's word will wisely keep us from her and speak to us better things than her flattering words. We just have to be willing to accept it. All right, verse 25 through 29, the damage that adultery does. Verse 25, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom, and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals, and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife, and whoever touches her shall not be innocent. So Solomon granted that the immoral woman may have beauty or lust uh, after, and wisdom in the word can help prevent someone from being mastered by the desire of her beauty or allure. Right? We are not to give place to that. A man is increasingly difficult for men to, one, control themselves in today's ever-expressive culture. And so, nor let her allure you. And so, in Solomon's day, allure means, uh, normally took place in a personal encounter. In the modern world, images constantly hope to allure you in, trying to rope you in. And so wisdom and the word helps us see these images for what they are. They're crooked lies that don't tell the truth about sex relationships or human nature. And I can guarantee you we have listeners that have seen a picture and then seen someone in real life and they do not match up at all. And so these images are lies, okay? Don't give in to that stuff. Do not covet her beauty. Do not let her capture you with her eyes. Suggest that coveting is going to begin by allowing eye contact. So desiring comes into his heart through optical stimulation aroused by her beauty, and more specifically by the pupils of her eyes, followed by her sweet talk. So with her eyelids, the eyes are singled out here because the painted eyes and the alluring glances are symptoms of seduction. You can look at 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30 for that. And so... By means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, right? And we're talking about a married man looking somewhere else now. And so, and, and entertaining these harlots or other women. So with her beauty and allure, the harlot promises to add something to the life of her customer. She's going to promise excitement, pleasure, attention, and any number of other things. Uh, yet she does not and cannot deliver on those promises. She takes away and does not give. Right? If, even if you look at it just plain money, not only like health and every other aspect you can look at it, damaging your soul, damaging your relationships, hardening your heart. And so the adulteress will prey upon his precious life. 
So several commentators favor translating uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 26 with the thought of comparing the cost of a harlot and the cost of adultery. And so the verse is best rendered, although the price of a prostitute may be as much as a loaf of bread, another man's wife hunts the precious life. So this obviously isn't meant to endorse going to a prostitute as opposed to having an affair with another man's wife, but is to show the complete folly of getting involved with another man's wife. Shouldn't do either. So Solomon's wisdom is brilliant in its clarity and simplicity, right? To take up with the harlot or adulteress is to play with fire and surely get burned, right? Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not get burned? He warns that whoever touches her is not going to be innocent. And so... He that goes into his neighbor's wife, he that lies with her, as the phrase signifies, and uh, lying with someone is sexual intention. And that goes all the way back to Genesis 19, 29, and other passages. And whosoever touches her has carnal knowledge of her, as this word is used in Genesis chapter 20 and 1 Corinthians 7. So, uh, shall not be innocent. So it's no good for a man to later on complain about the strength of temptation. Why did he not avoid it to begin with? Okay. So back to the great sin in our contemporary society, the sex sins, which can wreck the life of a young man more than anything else. No one can calculate the lives that have been absolutely wrecked and ruined because of them. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart Matthew chapter 5 verse 27 and 28 interesting alright verse 30 through 35 the disgrace that adultery brings people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving yet when he is found he must restore sevenfold and he may have to give up all the substance of his house and whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding he who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away, for jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. So Solomon considered how we might in some way excuse a thief who steals to survive, yet when the thief is caught, justice would require him to restore what he has stolen plus more. The adulterer steals, but not out of necessity, and in such a way that true resti restitution is impossible. Right? He cannot undo what he did, the adulterer. And so uh, restoring sevenfold, that's manifold according to the law limit. Uh, though it be to the utmost of what the thief is worth, but what restitution can the adulterer make should he make him amends with as much more, right? A thief steals out of want, the adulterer out of wantonness. And so Solomon contrasted thief and adultery, and there's an interesting link between them. Sexual immorality and adultery are like stealing. When we have sex with anyone other than our appointed partner in the covenant of marriage, we are stealing something from our spouse, present or future from our illicit sexual partner and from the present or future spouse of our illicit sexual partner. So Paul confirmed this likeness in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 3 through 6 where he wrote that to commit sexual immorality is to take advantage of and defraud our brothers. Okay? So to commit adultery and to commit sexual sin in general is not only sin against God and others, but it's also technically it's against one's own soul. 
his own body in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. I know this isn't cool or hip to talk about, but that's just what the word's driving at. Ultimately, this is ultimate, you know, holy truth. And so we usually think that the penalty for sexual immorality comes if the sin is exposed and known. But wisdom in God's word is going to tell us that it destroys whether it's exposed or not. Uh, it can be even if it, there's no secrets before God's eyes. And so King David was a brilliant strategist in the battlefield and a wise ruler on the throne, but he lost his common sense when he gazed at his neighbor's wife and lusted for her in Second Samuel chapter 12. And it destroys his own soul. So you'll note that the blame is upon the adulterer. He may blame the temptress, his wife, his lust, his desires, his circumstances, God, the devil himself. Yet at the end of it all, he's destroying his own soul. And so the expression for destroying himself in verse 32 is going to stress that the guilty one destroys his own life. And so the vixen hunts for his life, but he is responsible for his self-destruction. And so his reproach will not be wiped away. So in addition to the ways that sexual immorality brings harm, it will also bring disgrace when it is discovered. The jealous husband will often not spare in the day of vengeance and will not be appeased in his anger. He's going to be pretty mad. And so although it's going to be forgiven by God, yet the reproach and scandal of it all is going to remain during our lifetime. It can't just be wiped away. And so accept no recompense. And this is an injury that commits uh, no compensation. No gifts can satisfy a man for the injury of his honor has sustained. And to take a bribe or a ransom would be setting up chastity at a price. And so wounds and dishonor he's going to get. And sexual immorality offers pleasure and excitement and often romance. And it may or may not deliver those things. But even if it does, it will also bring wounds and dishonor. And it brings wounds to one's body and soul and dishonor in the family, congregation, and community. All right, so sexual sin results in losses, and they lose the word of God. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20 through 24. 1 John 1, verses 6 through 9. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not tell the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin, that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10 through 10 is going to note that walking in the light assures us of hearing the word of God while walking in darkness causes us to lose his word. And so there is going to be a gradual erosion of the spiritual life from light to darkness. And with this erosion comes the deterioration of Christian character. And so they're going to lose wealth as well in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25 and 26. Uh, so scandals can bring about a lawsuit, a divorce, AIDS, HIV, the price is not going to be cheap here. They're going to lose enjoyment in verses 27 through 31, right? Sex is a good gift from God, but like fire, if it gets out of control, it becomes destructive. It begins as a warm experience, um, and it's soon going to become a burning experience, like holding a torch in your lap or walking on burning coals. In verse 32, they're going to lose their good sense. And King David was a brilliant strategist on the battlefield and a wise ruler on the throne. But obviously he lost that common sense when he gazed at his neighbor's wife, Uriah, and he lusted after her. Right? His neighbor, uh, Uriah, and his wife, Bathsheba. And so 
he was sure that he could get away with this sin, but common sense would have told him that he was wrong. Every strategy David used to implicate Bathsheba's husband failed, so he ended up having the man killed. Surely, David knew that you know what we reap is what we sow, and reap he did right to the harvest field of his own family. And we can also look at Ahithophel, who is advisor to Absalom and his rebellion. Uh, interestingly enough, he was Bathsheba's unforgiving grandfather, and that cost David. That's why he jumped ship. And so he was the father of Eliam, the father of Bathsheba, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, and chapter 23, verse 34 and 39. So Uriah the Hittite and Eliam, being both of the king's guard, which consisted of 37 officers, they were friends, and Uriah married the daughter of his brother officer. So you can understand Ahithophel's sense of wrong towards David, the murderer of his grandson by marriage and the corrupter of his granddaughter. So the people's loyalty was naturally shaken towards one whose moral character they had ceased to respect. And something else that's going to happen is they're going to lose their peace in verse 33 through 35. And sinners can be sure that their sins are going to be found out. Indulging in sexual sin is always a losing proposition. And that ties up Proverbs chapter 6. Next time we'll get into Proverbs chapter 7 talking about the lure of the harlot. Thank you for joining me.